We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for each person that's here. We ask you to bless this time as we open your word. Guide and lead us in what you would have us to see as we continue this picture of Israel being the adulterous bride of you, Lord. And help us to see what you would have us to see in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 16, starting at verse 44. Behold, everyone that uses Proverbs shall use this proverb against you, saying, As is the mother, so is the daughter. You are your mother's daughter and that loathes her husband and her children. You are the sister of your sisters, which loathe their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. And your older sister is, a, is Samaria. She and her daughters that dwell at your left hand and your younger sister that dwells at your right hand is Sodom and her daughters. Yet have you walked not after their ways, nor done after their abominations, but as that were a very little thing, you were corrupted more than they in all your ways. As I live, says the Lord God, Sodom your sister has not done, nor she nor her daughters as you have done, you and your daughters. Behold, this was the iniquity of your, of your sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. They, and they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. Neither has Samaria committed half of your sins, but you have multiplied your abominations more than they, and they have justified your sisters in all your, their abominations which you have done. You also which have judged your sisters bear your own shame for your sin that you have committed more abominations than they. They are more righteous than you. Yea, be, be you confounded also and bear your shame in that you have justified your sisters. When I shall bring again their captivity, the captivity of Sodom and her daughters and the captivity of Samaria and her daughters, then will I bring again the captivity of your captives into the midst of them. We're going to stop there because this, chapter, this paragraph is getting very long. <laughs> so we're continuing here on this idea of them going against God and God saying that because they've gone against him, they've committed a spiritual adultery. And, you know, last week we talked about the, how their adultery was so bad and their whoredom was so bad that what they had done actually was they were paying others to have the adultery with them, you know, and he goes, even the prostitutes don't do that. They go out and they take pay from people. They don't pay them to come in. So here he's continuing this general thought. He, behold, in verse 44, Behold, everyone that uses Proverbs shall say this against you. As the mother, so is the daughter. Okay, so he's basically saying the apple doesn't fall from the, far from the tree. You're, you know... Uh, we would say like father, uh, like uh, father, like son, or like in this case, he's they switching it the way, you know, mother, and because he's using the idea of adultery, on it, and it says, "You are your mother's daughter that loathes her husband and her children, and you are the sister of your sisters that loathe their husbands and their children. Your mother is a Hittite, and your father an Amorite." And this is kind of an interesting sto- statement because this goes way back to the mixing of the different, different groups that he's talking about. We have Edomites in there. We have the, the Canaanites that are in there. We've got to go all the way back to these. But he's really saying here, spiritually, you are mixed with all these different groups. And Israel was supposed to be separate. They were supposed to separate themselves and live righteously before God and before the nations. And they never, really have never done that. 
And, we, and again, we go back all the way to Jacob's family where they were worshiping idols. And when he finally got right with God, they buried, if you remember the story, they took the idols out of the houses and out of the tents and they buried them in a tree and left them behind. That was the first time that Jacob was pictured as a righteous individual is when he finally chooses God and says, God, we're going to honor you. We're going to throw away all these other idols. We see them in Egypt, coming out of Egypt, and they're following idols because that's what they had been around for all those hundreds of years in Egypt. They had been bombarded with all this false teaching and became very idolatrous and not following God the way they should. We see all through the judges period where they're going through and they're being going through and becoming idolatry, following idol, idols and being judged. We see David where they actually seem to be following God and, and Solomon starts out correctly, but because he marries so many foreign women and builds them temples so they can worship their gods. And the next thing you know, we're finding that he's in the temple with them. And we can picture exactly how that worked. You know, Solomon, you know going to Solomon, you know, hey, we, you know, you've got your God. We'd like to worship our gods. And loving them like he did, he said, okay, well, I'll build you these temples. And then the next statement is, well, you never come to our temple with, you know, to worship our gods. And before you long, he's drifting away from God. And he was the wisest man that ever lived for a period of time. <laughs> well, he didn't, he didn't always do what he was supposed to. But neither does anybody else. <laughs> even, even the wisest man in the world didn't, didn't stay wise with God. We see Israel always having this problem. All through the periods of kings, they kept falling away from God. The northern kingdom went completely away from God. And, and that became because the king of, of Israel, the northern kingdom, said he didn't want his people going into Jerusalem to worship God lest they not come back. He was worried about them not coming back to his kingdom, so he set up golden calf worship, and he set an idol in Dan and in and uh, just north of Jerusalem, so that people would say would not go to Jerusalem. He said, "Here's your gods," kind of the same thing that Aaron said when he threw the golden and made a golden calf and said, "Here's your god, worship it." So this has been the problem that they've had over and over for all these years, and he says, "You're following not just one god." But you're following hundreds of gods. Yeah, when Aaron, when Aaron stood before, the people came before Aaron, uh, jo, Moses had been up on the hill, mountain for 40, Mount Sinai for 40 days. And they said, well, we don't know what happened to this Moses fellow, and, but create us a god. And he said, give, us, give me your gold. And, and, he, and he molded a golden calf out of it. So was he blameless? Absolutely not. I couldn't believe he, he tried to get out of it by saying, I didn't know, it just came out that way. Yeah, that was the worst excuse I've ever in, in all of all times. I, I just threw the gold in here and out popped this calf. You know, it was a miracle. It was a miracle, Moses. I mean, Aaron was still elevated to a high priest, you know, at, when the law was given. But I think it did damage a little bit of his relationship. And Aaron was never, Aaron never followed as closely as Moses did. Uh, for two of Aaron's sons, on the very first day that they go to offer sacrifices in the new tabernacle... Yeah, do, do things their own way. Possibly people believed that they were drunk and did things their own way and they ended up being killed for not following, doing things the way God said to do them. Right in their own eyes, right? Right in their own eyes. So we see all of this problems that Israel has always had following God. But you know, it's not uncommon. The majority of people 
will always follow after their own way. Even in the church, the majority of people going to church are trying to do things their own way in most churches. Now there are a handful of churches that are well taught where you can see the majority following God and the minority, but those churches are in the minority over all the rest of the churches. There are churches out there that won't teach the Word of God, won't teach what God says, won't, won't take a stand, and then wonder why they don't have any godly people in their church because they're not taking a stand for God. Itching ears, telling them what they want to hear, not, not holding up the standard of God, and people want to hear, do good. Just be a good person. And that's not what gets us into heaven, and we've got to keep that in mind. He says, you are like your like your, all these neighbors around you. You're worshiping all these gods. And it says, your older sister is a, is a Samaria, and she and her daughters that dwell at your left hand and your sister, younger sister that dwells at your right hand is Sodom and her daughters. But he says, and then it says, your younger sister is Sodom. Sodom, destroyed. And he's saying, you're as bad as Sodom, which is why they went into captivity in the first place, because they were getting that bad. And we see homosexuality reigning all through Israel, through the stories of the, in Judges. We see uh, sodomy being a big problem. We see it through different, different times in the Kings. It's pretty amazing that homosexuality has been in existence for, um, seems like the beginning, that Satan has tried to use it against God's people and saying, you know, enjoy, enjoy your sex without the opportunity to have re re reproduction. And that's the biggest part of it, drawing it. And by doing that, Satan can try to destroy humanity because of, there's no reproduction. They're trying to downplay the idea of sodomy. And there's many of the homosexual groups that want to say that, homos uh, that sodomy wasn't the main sin of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they'll take verses like we were just reading. We'll get into that a little bit and say, that no, see, it, see according to this, it wasn't, it wasn't homosexuality. And we're seeing it over and over in our, in our lifetime. What was called sin starts becoming called sickness. And homosexuality was called a sickness for many, many decades in this country. Drunkenness has now become a sickness called alcoholism. The next step from sickness is to make it normal and acceptable and that it's not a problem either way. Satan's plan is always to bring sin into acceptability and it goes through stages and it always has gone through. It is not uncommon. We've seen it all through history. Egypt before it fell had the same problem with homosexuality and, and blatant what we would call vulgar sexual activities were popular. Uh, it happened in Greece before it fell. It happened in Rome before it fell. These great empires end up with sexual sins becoming the defining ultimate sin that God finally says enough is enough. Our country has hit this point where we're starting to say that homosexuality is okay and right on the heels of homosexuality will come every other per perverse sexual activity to be said it's okay and once we hit those points God will take us out as a nation and it will answer everybody's question where is America in the end days destroyed because of our because of our sins. America won't be here you know much longer because we are at that point in history where the, the nation gets judged and every other nation that has been the top nations in the world are in that same boat and other nations will be raised up to take their place just as it has in every other epoch of history that 
the, the one nation is taken out, another is raised. A nation as a whole, not as a Nations are always judged as a whole. Our, you know, when Israel was taken into captivity, uh, into the Assyria, where there was every single person in, in, northern, in the northern kingdom bad? No, the majority of them were, but they're not every single, because God would have had a remnant of his people. But his remnant was taken into captivity with the ones who were sinners. When Babylon took Judah into captivity, does that mean every single person in Judah was, was a rampant, terrible sinner? No, there were still people that followed him. When Elisha called out and said, I'm the only one following you, God goes, you know, be quiet. I've got, fi I've got 5,000 people who haven't bent their knee to Baal. Quit, quit belly aching and go do what I told you to do, basically, is what he said. And so every time that God judges, what holds back his judgment is his people praying for the country. When there's not enough people praying for the country and God is finally fed up with it, then judgment falls. And righteous will get hurt along with the unrighteous. And this is what has always happened. Always happened. During the days of judges, when, when God would judge the people, was every single person in the, in the land evil? Probably not. You know, there were, had to be some godly, because what happened when they got down to the bottom and hit bottom? They would realize that they needed God. So there had to be somebody righteous in there to say, we need to come back to God. And there's the cycle. You get to that point of judgment, and people can be redeemed and have a revival. Our country has already seen three revivals for, in the, for, toward Christendom. I don't know that there'll be a fourth one. I pray that there will be, but I don't have without much hope that there'll be a fourth one, because each one has been shorter in duration. The very founding one that started mostly in England but hit the United States in the 1600s, 1700s set the stage for this country having a moral beginning. 1800s, we had the Second Great Awakening and it, God swept across this country and this world. 60s, 60s and 70s, we had the Jesus movement, which swept across most of the United States and really changed our country for a very short period of time, and it died down fast. And will we have a fourth one? I don't know. I don't hold much hope out of it, especially how short the, the last small one was. Because it obviously appears that America doesn't want to come and turn back to God, and we've come a long ways down the, the wrong road. Can God do it? Absolutely. Will he? I hope that he will, but I don't have a lot, hold a lot of uh, hope in it. We are seeing so much going on in this world, in our country, that we're looking at the end of this country if God doesn't move. Our job as Christians is to pray for our country and say, God, just a few more few more decades, a few more decades, another generation or two, God, because it says in Chronicles, if, you, if God's people will call upon his name, then he will deliver. We all have to be on our knees calling on our name. That's the whole theme of the National Day of Prayer each year, is for people, Christians, to come together and lift up our country before God and confess our sins. To do what Daniel did when he says, you know, the great prayer of Daniel is, I have sinned, or we have sinned more than I. And he identified with the people, and we look at his life, and he does not fit into that pattern that he's praying for. But because he's one of the people, and he says, God, we as a nation have sinned. Come and heal us, for, forgive us, protect us. We need to have that prayer, that we identify with the nation, because none of us are pure. You know, none of us are necessarily as bad as what's going to cause the judgment, but none of us are pure. 
And we need to confess to God that we are sinners and that we're confessing before God our country has problems and ask for great blessing and a, and a true revival. The second great awakening happened in, in western Massachusetts in a very small town. They started praying for revival and it swept across the country. And great power of rev revival swept across the country and changed, changed the lives. In the early 60s and early 70s, we had the Jesus movement sweeping across this country and lives were changed in a dramatic way. Didn't hold off very long, but it had some great impact on those who went through that. And we saw a lot of changes in our country for a short period of time. And the reason I say I'm not holding out much hope is because it was such a short period of time. The time between the first and the second great awakening was almost 100 years. The time between the, the second great awakening and, and the 80s was about 80 years. And then we have this other one that had just lasted a couple decades. Barely one gen, not even in one generation, and totally fell, fell away. We need to pray. That's our only hope. We pray for our country. We, we teach at the church level how to convert people, and we hope for a revival. I don't know if there'll be another nationwide revival. There'll be local revivals all over the place where God is lifted up, but we have to come before him. Israel is following in the ways of the world around them, even to the point where he says, you're, like, you're being like Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah, who I judged. <laughs> and you have holding in their, their place. And you notice what it says. It, your younger sister dwells at your right hand is Sodom. We've taught many times the right hand, the side of approval. You're approving what Sodom did. All that Sodom did. Verse 37, yet you have not walked after their ways, nor done their abominations, but as it were a very little thing, you were corrupted more than they in all their ways. So in other words, these country, countries and people that I have judged, you're not, even doing, you're not even just doing what they are doing. You're going further, deeper. And you know, when people fall away from God, they always fall further and deeper than where they, where they came from. The, the person who falls away from God, in, you know, they get out of drugs and alcohol and, and sexual perversions, and then they get saved and they, and they turn around. If they fall away from God, they end up going deeper and harder back into what they, they left. Now, whether they were saved or not, it's another story altogether. Whether they're still saved is another story, but they go deeper and further. And this is what he's saying about Israel. You guys have gone so far behind it. You're worshiping all the gods. You're sacrificing your children. You're committing these whoredoms in front of, in front of me. You're, you're, you have this deep relationship with me, and you're rejecting me, and you're committing all this fornication with all these other gods, sacrificing their children to these gods, and, and having orgies and, and illicit activities with sex and all the other things that go along with it. Because you're so far further than them. And that's why he sent them into judgment. Why did he not judge them further than he did? One reason and one reason only. Because he promised Abraham that they would be made into a great nation, that they, would that they would be the ones that would bless all the world. Over and over through the scriptures, you'll read that. You deserve this, but because of my covenant with Abraham, because of my covenant with Abraham, Israel des deserved to be destroyed just as Sodom and Gomorrah was because of their sinfulness. And God says, but I remembered my covenant. Why does God not destroy us when we sin? 
because he remembers the covenant that he has made with Jesus. He remembers that we have been covered by the blood and, and protected by the blood. Because every one of us have sinned many times in each day and probably deserve much more punishment than we get. We get a little bit of punishment because we're his children, but we deserve so much more if we really think about how much we deserve. And the way we think, the way we act, the way we talk, the you know, bad things that we think about. Man, if we just really understood how bad just thinking these things is all about. Not the temptation to think about them, but the actual engagement of thinking on the things that come our way. Now, this is where the problem comes in. You entertain it long enough, fill your heart long enough with this sin, eventually it will work its way out of your life. Jesus says, out of the abundance of, heart, of our heart, we speak, and we can go even further. Out of the abundance of our heart, we will act, eventually. So if we're filling our minds with all the wrong things, eventually it's going to come out in our language. People are going to hear us talk about the wrong things, talk about, talk about things that are ungodly, talk about the things that... And then eventually, if we don't get, repent and get corrected from God, we will act upon what it is that we spent our mind uh, thinking about. Because our actions will follow, will follow eventually. That's why when you meet somebody who's spiritual, who's in God's word, who's dwelling on God, meditating on God, their speech will show that they are godly. They will talk about godly things. They will talk about right things. They will build people up. They're, they will have loving conversation. And eventually their actual actions will follow after what they're meditating on. And they will do the loving things. They will do the kind things. They will do things that build up on people. And it takes time, but it happens. Both directions. Out of the abundance of our heart, we will speak and act. And, and we all know what it's like. We know people who claim to be Christians, who don't act like Christians, don't talk like Christians, don't, don't ever love anybody, don't ever do anything good for somebody. And you wonder who, really, who their God really is. Not that you're judging them, but you just look at their fruit and say, I don't see it. I don't see somebody who's following God. And we all know people that we say, well, this is somebody who is a godly person. Are they perfect? Absolutely not. We know that they're not perfect, but we see general, generally love coming from them. They're edifying. They're, they're trying to help the best they can with people. And we see that happening. And it's very important. What do we fill our minds with? What, how do we grow? How do we look at things? And he says, you have been, you know, he's telling Israel, you've been worse than them. Verse 48, as I live, says the Lord, Sodom, your sister, has not done, nor she nor her daughters, as you have done, and your daughters. Verse 49, behold, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I took away as I saw good. So here's the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and this is why many of the liberals will tell you it's not homosexuality because of this type of verse. It says, the iniquity of your sister Sodom was pride. They exalted themselves. They thought they were something special. And we know that that wasn't true because remember that when Lot lived outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, the five kings from the north came in and they took Sodom and Gomorrah and all the people and carried them away and Abraham had to deliver them. So we know that they really weren't that great in their pride, uh, as great as they thought they were. Fullness of bread, gluttony. 
Okay? Gluttony is also always, almost always part of somebody who's following the wrong direction from God. They make their stomach their God. And they, they eat and eat and eat. And usually those of us who have problems with gluttony have that problem. The food is important to us. And like I tell people, I didn't get as big as I am by not wanting to not eat. Uh, but gluttony, the whole desire to be eating just because it's there. Uh, and this is something that I've, I've seen. I'm getting better at I don't eat just because it's there. I don't eat just to overstuff myself. I used to. But uh, he says that was their sin. The abundance of idleness. They were lazy. Usually wealth breeds laziness. And we're seeing it even in our country. The more the country in general has gotten wealthy and people have gotten wealthy, even though people will say they're poor in America, it's very sad that the, the poor in America are better off than many rich people in the rest of the world. And it's really a sad thing because we, we see this over and over. Uh, in many places in the world, if you have a four, four solid walls and you're eating twice a day, you're in the middle class to upper class in their country. And here, people feel hungry if they, they miss one week, you know, I missed one meal, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't have two televisions, my, my cell phone was cut off. Uh, well, one of, my two, one of my two or three cars is broken down. And those people would be considered poor in our country. And it says, and this usually ends up happening, the more abundance there is, the lazier people will, will tend to become. And we see a lot of lazy people in this country. Even people that are, have jobs sometimes are quite lazy. I've said to many people, it's amazing to me when I was managing how hard people would work at looking like they were working. Okay? Many people will work harder to look like they're working than they would have if they had actually worked. You know, I'm looking like I'm busy and they're working harder looking like they're busy than they would have been if they had just done the job in the first place. And it's like, this is ridiculous. I've been told that many times. I've been told that many times. And then, then, then it says, and they neither strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. They really didn't care about the poor and needy. And this is, an, is something that God cares about greatly. The true poor and needy God cares for. Now those are, are just being lazy and poor because they're lazy. God doesn't have much care, much care for them. But there are people who literally are poor and needy that can't help themselves. The widows, the, the, the orphans. Um, I read recently the book on George Mueller and how he took care of 10,000 orphans in his uh, 70 years of ministry. That's a lot of orphans to be taken care of. And he never had a lot of money at any one time. He prayed every day for food and, and the bills that he was coming up with. And, but God used him in a great way. And he strengthened the poor, the poorest. They were haughty, and that means high-minded. And they committed abominations before me. And abominations is things that bring about sickness. If something is an abomination, it's when you see it, it brings forth a sick feeling in you. That would be the pictures of some of, some of the pictures that we see on TV on some of these crime shows are supposed to be abominations where somebody has been mutilated and hacked to death should make us sick. But we see it so often nowadays in our culture that it doesn't make us sick. 
When we see a, an act of homosexuality, it should make us sick. And yet, because we see it so much so often in our generation, it doesn't have that sick feeling that it used to bring to people. And God is saying, you've committed these abominations before me. And abominations could be any number of things in this case. Sodomy would be one. The, the offering of their children to the idols would be an abomination. And he says, you've done all of these. He says, therefore, I took away them away as I saw good. God is saying, because I'm sovereign, I'm going to do what I see as good. And this is something we have to really get to understand. God is sovereign, and he's going to do what he sees good. Why? Because he owns everything, including us. He owns everything, including the sinners out there that, don't belong, that think they don't belong to him. He still owns them. He owns all the lands, all the hills, all the, all the property, all the wealth. He owns everything, and he will do what he thinks is right and good to do. Whether we think it's good or bad or not, doesn't matter to him, because he's God. And he's the one that's in charge, so he's going to do what he thinks is good. And just as any good leader does, he's not necessarily going to answer to us on why. He's just going to say, this is what's good for you, and I know what's good for you. And this is why we're going to do it. And how does he know? Because he knows everything. And he knows it for sure. Much better than most leaders who look at it and say, this is what I think is good, so we're going to do it. God says, I know that it's good for you. Not, I think it's good for you, because I know what's coming down the road. I know what's good for you. And there takes away all of that, and he does what he knows is good for us. That means if he causes pain, he knows it's for our good. If he gives us blessing, he knows it's for our good. If he takes away the blessing, he knows it's for our good. To be able to teach something. And our country has had a great blessing on it for years because we started following on a godly principle and a very strong foundation that we had in the early days. And we've been falling away faster and faster from those principles of God. And we're going to pay for it. We are beginning to pay for it. Things are changing in our country. Weather and storms are getting really bad again. Uh, things are getting from, from bad to worse all, all the time. And all we can do is say, God, we stand before you. We're in your protection. And things are going to continue to get worse for Christians until the point where we're going to be under persecution even in this country. And this is going to be happening, and it's beginning to happen. They're pushing the limits on trying to make things happen. They're trying to punish anybody who wants to say that sin is sin and make life difficult for us. They're trying to make sure that all these things have happened and they push the limits all the time on what they can get away with. And each time they push the limits, they get a little further down the, down the road on what they can get away with. And it won't be long before we're being arrested for taking a standard that God says is the standard. How long? I don't know. I've watched it fall. You know, things are happening now that we never thought would happen in this country. What do you say with um, the companies like that? You, know, you see it a lot in the bakeries and stuff like that. They and they're being told they have to or go out of business. Yeah. Uh, photographers are saying you have to well, yeah, take pictures wow, of it. But they should have the right not to. But a photographer shouldn't, shouldn't have to be in that being that uh, thing because you literally have to be at that wedding. So I definitely have problems with, with any of those type of things, but. Yeah, 
supposed to follow the You follow your conscience. Follow the law of the land. You have a right to refuse service to anyone they want. What you have to do at that time is do what they're, what they're doing and say, I'm going to have to stand with what I believe God wants me to do as opposed to man. And as I have always said, just because I choose to follow God does not stop the government from giving the punishment to me. It didn't to the disciples. The disciple says, we're going to follow God. And then they got scourged and beat and, and punished. And they bore, bore it well because they were bearing it for Christ. Uh, so if you're going to participate in civil disobedience, it is the government's right to, even though you feel they're wrong, it's the government's right to punish you. And you have to then take that punishment. You decided to be disobedient to the civil government that God has put in place. And even if they're wrong, and the disciples are a great example of that. Many of them were, were beat and, and martyred and everything. If we're going to be civilly disobedient to our government and stand on the fact that we're obeying God, we must be ready to take the punishment that comes along with taking the stand for God. And that will be a witness for many, and it'll be a joke to other people. See, these people are nuts. They're willing to be taking punishment for it. But us taking a godly stand on the punishment that comes our way will be a position that says, I'm standing for God no matter what. Will be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're answering Nebuchadnezzar, well, who can take you out of my hand? Our God is able to, but whether he does or whether he doesn't, we will not be obedient to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. So there are times that we're going to have to say, no, we're going to preach and we're going to stand for God. If it comes out that, that to say homosexuality is a sin from the pulpit is against the law, I am going to still see, teach that homosexuality is a, a sin. If they try to say that it, fornication is, you know, is against the law to say that it's a sin, I'm going to still say fornication is a sin. And I will have to take whatever comes my way because of taking a stand for God. Because I cannot deny Christ. I cannot deny the word of God and hope that he's going to not stand, not deny me in the process. And so I have to stand up for him, even if it means going to jail, going to prison, being beat, whatever, whatever, decide, whatever they finally end up deciding is the, the punishment in the future. And we need to make that decision. Who are we going to follow? How strong are we going to follow him? So I take these people that have lost their businesses because they refuse to, do, to, to endorse something that they consider sin. I understand where they're at and I take and I give, believe that they have the right to believe to do that because it is their right to stand with their conscience before them and God and the question is what happens when you do that the pastors in uh, Dallas that had to were told that they had to submit their sermons to the to the government for the you know for the last six months or whatever it was you know and they, as a group, decided that no, they weren't going to give their sermons to them. The mayor was uh, Houston, not Dallas. Houston. This was Leslie. She was trying to get the churches to force them to give up their, uh, their tax status. Tax exempt status if they said anything against homosexuality. Yeah. These things are coming, and it's getting worse with every passing year. It's getting worse, and they're getting bolder in every passing year, yeah. and it's. This is why it's going to be a huge issue for us. Where are we going to stand? When, what are we going to consider is the point where we will not follow God? We, hopefully we, it is when we're dead. But 
it's going, to be a, it's going to be a temptation for each one of us because it's going to get hard. The disciples, it wasn't easy for the disciples to go and get beat, get 39 lashes from the, from the synagogues because of their beliefs for, for, of God and then be thrown into, into dirty, stinking dungeons for, for the night, you know, night while they were told not to worship God, not to teach in Jesus' name. But they never backed down. In our day and age, there are more people being martyred today than ever before in history. It's, it's just a fact. There's places where to be a Christian means that your life is in danger. Many of the Muslim world, if you become a Christian, your life will probably be in danger. Your business definitely is because nobody's going to come and do, do business with you because you're a Christian, you're an infidel, and your life is going to be in, in jeopardy. It's happening all the time. And God says, I'm still here. Verse 51, Neither has Samaria committed half of your sins, but you have multiplied your abominations more than they, and have justified your sisters in, in their, your abominations which you have done. So in other words, he's saying, in comparison, you are so bad that these people that are bad look almost good. He's not saying they were justified. He goes, but in comparison, you're making them look good. And we've all known people that were really bad, but that we can find somebody who's worse than them that kind of makes them look bad. And we see this over and over, that people, there are people out there that are just terrible. And they, make, you know, they do make bad people look almost good in comparison. And God's saying, you're so bad off that you're making Samaria look good. Verse 22, you also, you also which have judged your sister, bear your own shame for your sins that you have committed more abominations than they, they are more righteous than you, yea, you confound also and bear your shame in that you have justified your sisters. And then he's just saying, you know, you're so, you condemn them and yet you're doing worse. And unfortunately, if somebody wants to be judgmental and attack people, most people judge and attack people that are doing things that they're already doing or they're doing things very similar. And you're trying to make yourself look good by condemning others and drawing attention to them and away from you. And this is why Jesus said, you know, before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the beam out of your own eyes, because what do we know, what do we most aggressively against are things that we have problems with in the first place? Uh, and we see this many times. Somebody who's given up smoking or drugs or, or alcohol get, can, be, can be very judgmental against those who are not not out of it, especially if you start slipping back into it, you really get judgmental against those people because you're trying to deflect. No, no, not me, not me. I'm not, no, look at them, look at them. And this says, this is what you're doing. You have judged them and you're doing much worse than they are. And you know, when you know to do better, to do good and you don't do it, it's really worse than somebody who doesn't know it and is maybe even worse off, you know, maybe doing more, but you know you're not supposed to do it. God has a greater judgment for that when you know you're not supposed to do it. If you look back in your life, there were certain things in your life that God has taken out of your life that before he took it out of your life was not really a big deal to you. You didn't ever consider it a problem. Then all of a sudden, he says, okay, we're taking this out. This is a sin. And then all of a sudden, you had to take it out of your life because he says, now this is a sin. This is something that is very important. Many times, the Bible does not have a thou shalt not attached to different things that we give up. But God comes along and says, this is something you're going to change. 
I have many places in my life that God says, this is what you're going to change. And I've got verses behind why I should change it. But there aren't, uh, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit, uh, you know, all these different things that, the, that God has. But how many things do we give up because God just impresses on us that they're wrong? You know, there's verses in there and we say, okay, God, yes, I agree with you, this verse applies to this. But it isn't thou shalt not. And a lot of people will give up things like smoking and, and, and alcohol because they'll read in there, you know, we are the temple of God, you know, you can't and don't pollute the temple of God. And so people will read into that, okay, I shouldn't smoke, which is probably a valid way of applying it. But it doesn't say because you're the temple of God, you shall not smoke. It just says don't pollute the temple of God. And in context, it's talking about spiritual, <laughs> spiritual things. But people have taken it to mean much more. Do use your money wisely and, and, and honestly. Don't you know? Don't throw it away frivolously. And people will use that and say, "Okay, see, it says don't 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 uh, uh, gamble." Well, gambling's probably not the best thing in the world to do, but there is no verse that says thou shalt not gamble. There are lots of verses that say use your money wisely, and if somebody's addicted to gambling, they probably shouldn't be gambling, because you can waste a lot of money real quick gambling. If somebody can just enjoy for, as entertainment, then that's probably another story altogether. Is it good or bad? That's between each individual. <laughs> there, there are people that will tell you automatically, no, it's wrong, don't do it. And I can understand why they would say that. But again, are we dealing with verses? Can we stand on God's word on these things? Or are we just interpreting his word in a certain way? I have a young man I was talking to today, and he's, he's got some really weird beliefs because he's taken five or six different pictures and symbols and jamming them together in another place where they don't fit and coming up with some very weird doctrines. And, you know, and I'm going, no, what you're saying doesn't make any sense. It's not valid. You can't take this point, this spiritual point over here and this symbol over here and apply it to this actual event over here and say that this is spiritualized. And we need to be careful about these things. We need to make sure that when we're reading the Bible, we're reading it for what it says and not trying to come up with all these interesting things that the, the cults and many churches do come up with. So we want to be very careful when reading it. But he says, you have, are more shameful and confounded and bear the shame of your sisters whom you've justified. Verse 53, when I shall bring up again their captivity, the captivity of Sodom and her daughters and the captivity of Samaria and her daughters, then will I bring again the captivity of your captives in the midst of them that you may bear your own shame and may be confounded in all that you have done and that you, in that you are a comfort unto them. In other words, because you're so bad, you have comforted them. Have you ever maybe been there in yourself or seen people who take comfort that there are people worse than they are? You know, I'm really not that bad. Look at that person over there. Well, okay, so they're worse than you are. It really doesn't make you better just because somebody else is worse. And too many people want to have this as their, their lifestyle. Well, I'm not as bad as... This is talking about people who are saying they're better because somebody else is worse. And there's a lot of people that do that. Lots of people that do that. When you're witnessing to them, well, I'm not, I'm not as bad as... You know, God will take care of me because there's people worse. And you, you know, how many people really ever look at saying there's people better than them? You know, we don't even use, like to do that a lot of times unless we're looking to be challenged to be better. I want to be like that person over there. I want to spend time, and this is what I share. If you really want to learn something, find somebody who's doing it and go, find, go spend time with them and learn how 
you know, you want to learn to pray, you go find somebody who's a good prayer warrior and say, look, can we get together once in a while and pray? Can we get together and study? Can we get together and, and discuss this or that or whatever it might be and strive to learn how to be more like them and follow God? Because they'll teach you what they've been taught. Yeah. And how does anybody who's done it learn? The hard way. <laughs> they've been tested. They've been tried. And they've, they've learned that their prayers get answered because of long-term practice in prayer. Uh, they learned that how to study God and, and be devoted unto His by getting into the God's Word and seeing that He's faithful of His Word. How do people get, learn to trust God when things go wrong? They just they go through enough wrong things that they learn that God is trustworthy and all. You know. And the thing about it is, if you want to get something bigger in your life and more righteous, get ready for the trials that come along with it. Because if you're going to learn to be a prayer warrior, you're going to be put through some hard trials that you have to pray through. If you want to be, learn to be trusting God more, you're going to be put through some hard trials that make you have to trust Him. And you're going to fail a lot of them for a while, and then you'll pass some of them, and then you'll get the little harder trials as he says, okay, you're, you're now trusting me, let's take you to the next level. Let's take you to the next level of prayer. Let's take you to the next level. How much are you willing to trust and, and accept? And God is saying, I'm going to lift you up. So verse 55, When your sister Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former estate, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former estate, then you and your daughters shall return to your formal estate, former estate. For your sister Sodom was not mentioned in your mouth in the day of your pride. Behold, your wickedness was discovered as at that time of your reproach of the daughters of Syria, and all around about her and the daughters of Philistine, which despise you around about. You have borne your lewdness and your abomination, says the Lord. I love this. He says, your sins were found out. God does not let us hide our sins. Our sins always will be brought out, especially even for the lost world, but especially for us, his children. If you're a child of God, your sins will be put on display if you do not confess and repent from them. If you confess and repent from them, then they are under the blood and hidden and you've done what you're supposed to do to become more righteous and following God. If you try to hide them and say, nope, God, I don't care, eventually God will expose them. We've seen this over and over with many evangelists over the years who have thought they could get away with adulterous affairs and God eventually says, we're shouting it off the top, to the top of the rooftops and people are going to know. Uh, about a year ago, one of the, one of the people that, from the Calvary Chapel had the same thing. He was very popular on the radio, and he got caught up in, in affairs, and he went off the radio and everything else, lost his ministry for a period of time, if not forever, because he was trying to hide his sins from and not confess and repent. God is very serious about this. He is not going to let his children give a bad testimony to others. He is going to judge it. He is going to bring it out. And we have a choice. Confess and repent or be embarrassed. Always. Always going to be the case. Confess or repent or be embarrassed. And it's much better to confess and repent. A lot easier on you. A lot easier on what God has to put you through as well. Verse 58, uh, 59. Thus saith the Lord God, I will even deal with you as, I, as you have done which has despised the oath in breaking the covenant. 
Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish you unto you an everlasting covenant. So God says, I will remember the covenant. Whose covenant? Goes all the way back to Abraham. <laughs> and why was it with Abraham? Because God just loved Abraham enough to give him a great blessing. Abraham wasn't some super saint that God says, you know, you're special. He was a worshiper of the one God. He was trying in some ways to follow God, but he made lots of mistakes in his lifetime. Made lots of problems, made lots of different errors, but God still blessed him. And he grew with God into a mighty man of God. And he says, I was with you in those early days and I will remember you because of the covenant I have with you. Verse 61, then you shall remember your ways and be ashamed. When you shall receive your sisters, your elder and your younger, and I will give them unto you for daughters, but not by your covenant. And I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame. Then I will pacify towards you, be pacified towards you in all that you have done, says the Lord God. He says, there's coming a time when I'm going to implement the covenant. When will this covenant be truly implemented? It got started when Jesus came, but it truly will be fulfilled at the end of the tribulation for a thousand years where they're going to have their fulfillment of being the center of everything. But they're going to have to go through a lot of headaches before then. Seven years of trials where Satan is going to try to destroy Israel. And at one point, Israel will recognize when Satan stands up in the new temple and says, I am God, worship me, they'll all of a sudden worship, realize that they have been deceived. And they will all of a sudden realize that Jesus was the Messiah be delivered by him. And it all comes through revelation. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. We ask that you teach us to honor you in all that we do, that we will follow you and guide your guidance and your leading, Lord, that we will be righteous before others, that we will lift you up in the way that you live through us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.